When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 10th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, says the latest data on the government's first home scheme is really encouraging. The data highlights how up to the end of last year, 3,196 people were approved under the scheme. 1,255 homes have actually been bought under the scheme. The majority of Approvals have been in Dublin, Cork, Kildare, Meath and Wicklow. Under the scheme, first-time buyers can bridge the gap between the value of their mortgage and the price of the house by borrowing 20% of the cost of the property from the state that then takes the same percentage in equity in the property until the buyer is in a position to repay the money on houses up to the value of €475,000 in Dublin, €425,000 in County Meath and €375,000 in County Louth. That percentage increases up to 30% of the cost of newly built homes. The Minister says this is a game changer for those who have being approved under the scheme and this data that has just been released says that the state has taken 18% Uh, equity status in uh, the property on average of uh, those people to the value of some €66,651. Let's speak to Fianna Fáil Senator Pat Casey about this and uh, a very good morning to you Senator Casey and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, Undoubtedly people are happy that they're able to uh, afford their new homes but is there any concern that they're being straddled with debt into the very long term that they may never be able to afford? Well, well, first of all, we must first of all get a full understanding of how the scheme works. Yes, it, it is a second debt. There's no point in denying it's not. It's money that has to be repaid. 
but it doesn't act or behave in the same way as a mortgage does. It actually behaves completely differently. And it's, it's in the hands of the person who is availing of the scheme, number one, when and how they pay the service fee or when and how they pay the equity remaining. So it, it is really in, in their hands. Also, we've got to remember the combined first home scheme and a mortgage cannot exceed 90% loan-to-value ratio, which was what the problem we had at the time of the crash is where we were getting 100% plus mortgages. So it, basically, this is trying to help the cohort of people who need it, who are in a position, number one, to get a mortgage. And a combination between the mortgage and the help to buy scheme, they're still short at 30,000, 50,000, or as you said, the example, the average was 66,000 to allow them to purchase their home. And, and the first home scheme steps in, provides that equity of 66,000, allows that family to move into their house. But there, it is a debt. It has to be repaid. But it, it, the similarity to mortgage is completely different, Michael, from that point of view. And the flexibility within the scheme in relation to repayment of either the service fee or the equity is quite unique in, in a sense. Mm. And I think that's why it has taken a, a while for people to get an understanding of the scheme, which was launched in July in 2022. And we're seeing significant uptake in the latter half of 2023 because people now understand how the scheme works and how flexible it is for them. Okay, they're not in for a, a rude awakening in 10 or 20 years, are they? If for, Absolutely. I, I, no, but no. I, just, just to finish the question, if, for example, they want to move home but can't afford to repay that loan to the state... Yeah, so if, if they have the flexibility, if they're moving home, they're selling the home. Are you with me? So they're selling the house that they've bought. So at that point, the state is entitled to its equity back. So from the proceeds of the sale, you can pay both your equity and, and the service fee, Michael. And it's only at that point where the first home scheme said, once you agree to sell your property, then all outstanding debts have to be paid at that point, but only at that point. But mm. you are in indeed selling the property. You are selling the asset of which the state owns an equity in. And it's way under, it's only on average, I think it's about 15 to 17% equity in, in that property. Now, we also understand that the first home scheme works with you in the sense that if your property value goes up, the first home scheme gets that benefit. But if the value of your property is devalued, the first home scheme loses as well as yourself. Hmm. So there's an equal partnership there in in relation to the equity model. Yeah, but it it may be impossible uh, for people to afford to buy out that loan uh, in 10 or 20 years from now because of what's owed on it. Uh, You may be in a position now where you owe €66,000 or however much it may be, but that's the average, so we use that as uh, the example. Mm. But after five years, you pay interest on on that of 1.75%. That goes up to 2.15%, and then again to 2.85%. But also with that, uh, the uh, amount that you owe increases in line with the value of the house, and you'd expect that house prices will continue to increase. So, uh, if you buy a house now, let's say for four hundred thousand, and in fifteen years' time it's worth five hundred thousand, uh, then you have a, 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 what is that? A twenty percent increase on that sixty-six thousand. 
Yeah, and, and, and the equity is a percentage of, of that. Are you with me? It's not its totality. Yes. And, and that's why I think the transparency is in this scheme. So it is clearly stating to you that the state is taking an equity in your home. If the value of that equity increases, the state will get the benefit of it. And also you will get the benefit of it because you will still own 86% of the house, whereas the state might only own 14 or 16% of the house. And the proceeds of the sale will cover that increase. So from that point of view, it is quite clear how the scheme works. The service fee, as, as you did mention, we must and also recognise that you're not asked to pay any service fee for the first five years. So there's no cost in relation to the service fee in, in the first five years. Some people might be lucky enough to get a bit of inheritance during that year mm. and are able to repay the equity then at, at no cost. But you will know today what service percentage fee you will pay in 2056, and that's 2.85. You know that today. Mm. And you can repay your equity at any stage during the year. You can have two options to repay it at any point in time during any calendar year to pay down the equity. The more equity you pay down, the less service fee you also pay. It's not improbable. You You can defer the service fee, Michael, up until you sell the house, if that's what you so wish. Hmm. And then both the proceeds of the sale of the house will cover both the equity and the service fee outstanding. But it's not improbable, is it, to think that you would come to the end of your mortgage when most people uh, end up owning their own homes. Uh, But under this scheme, you would come to the end of your mortgage owing maybe €100,000. Yeah, if if that's what the percentage equates at that point in time. But you also, if if that is is 10%, then the house is valued at a million. So you have gained on 90% of it, Michael. So all I'm saying is that the state is in it with you. If the property value goes up, they will get the benefit of their equity percentage. You will also get the benefit of your ownership in it. If the value of the house goes down, the state loses along with yourself. So that's clearly there in in black and white. You know exactly what you're signing up to. You know exactly what your service fee you're being asked to pay for. That is guaranteed. That is ring-fenced. So you know today that if I end up getting 50000 from the first home scheme and in 30 years' time I have repaid nothing of that equity back and I still owe that 50000 I only pay 2.85% per annum on that that 50000 So you know exactly what you're exposing yourself to. Okay, and but- I also will come back to the point, this is here to bridge the gap. So these are people who probably can only get a 75% mortgage and require that 15% extra to buy that house. So a lot of these are still well below the 90% loan-to-value ratio. Okay, if uh, you were a developer, uh, you might look on this uh, from a different perspective. Uh, if you were building houses that you could make profit on at €350,000, for example, in County Meath, why not increase that price to 425000 the maximum under this scheme? Uh, because there is such demand, there's so... 
uh, few houses available and demand is so high that people uh, who can get this uh, money from the state uh, will obviously uh, be top of the queue, won't they? This is money for developers, in other words, is it not? No, it's not money for developers, Michael. In all fairness, it is, it is an equity scheme that has known people buy their own home for their own families. That's what this scheme is about. And in fairness to the government, they have done continuous reports in relation to the operation of it at the moment, and that there is an independent report being carried out at the moment in mm. relation to the impact it has in, in relation to the inflation of houses. And we are not, there is no evidence of it that is increasing the, the price of houses. I know in my Well, there, there is evidence of it in London, isn't it? Uh, isn't there? There is a completely... House prices uh, increased by 9%, though. No, no, no. Number one, Michael, this is the first home shared equity scheme is not available in London. You're referring to the help-to-buy scheme, which is actually completely different to the Irish help-to-buy scheme in relation to how it operates. So there is two schemes out there that are helping families purchase their own homes for their own families. One is the help-to-buy scheme, which was introduced in 2016, and the second one was the first home shared equity scheme, which was introduced last year in July. Okay. They're the two schemes that are assisting families to buy their own homes, Michael. And they are completely different in how they operate and act in, compared to anything in relation to London or England. Okay, but you are encouraging people to buy beyond their means. Why not ask people to buy a cheaper house? Rather than buying a house in County Mead for 425000 why not buy one for 350000 but we're not asking a family to buy a house for four hundred twenty-five thousand if they can buy a house. Well, you're, for gi- you're giving them the wherewithal to, 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 to you're giving them the no, wherewithal to overstretch themselves. We're we're not actually we're not because it is capped. You can only get X percentage on the mortgage you can get, so that is capping your exposure and your liability, Mike. So if you if you can only get a mortgage of of sixty-eight percent. You can only get a 20% top up from the first home scheme, which is 88% mortgage. So if that mortgage is related to the mortgage that you yourself can get from the bank, and your mortgage has to be approved in principle prior to you being qualifying for the first home scheme. So what is governing this is your ability in relation to your mortgage. So you're, you're cutting your cloth to the, what you can actually afford, Mike. It's not that you can just go out and buy a 475,000 house if your mortgage is clearly stating that you can only afford a 350. But you will end up with this debt uh, which you wouldn't otherwise yeah. have been able yeah. to like Michael, there has to be a realisation but, but, that, that in relation to housing and in relation to the cost of housing, that there is a there is a problem in relation to people being able to afford their houses that they want to live, and that's why the first home scheme was introduced, which is a very transparent scheme, which allows that family get another twenty percent on top of the help to buy scheme to allow them purchase their homes, and it's still keeping them well below the 90% loan-to-value ratio, and we're not going near that 100 or 110% that we were talking in the boom time. Uh, up to and a maximum of... Have to, them, have, 
sorry, Mike. Sorry, up to a maximum of 475,000 for a house. Why, why is that figure higher uh, for an apartment instead of 475,000, it's half a million? Uh, if uh, people are looking to buy uh, and uh, they can afford a house for 475,000, is this not encouraging to, again uh, to spend money that they haven't got uh, and encouraging developers to look for that additional money? Number one, uh, listen, to the family themselves, they can only avail of the first home scheme based on the mortgage that they can receive from an approved lender. So that is restricting how far they can go. So if they can only get a mortgage of 300,000 and they're using the help to buy scheme, the maximum then that they can get is 60,000 from the first home scheme. So the maximum house they can buy is 360,000. They cannot afford a 475,000. So the mortgage that you are approved for is what it's that's where your thought is cut in relation to what you can afford, Michael. Okay, so and that's the governing thing. Now, listen, in Wicklow, we have actually seen it actually working in the sense of we had houses at 470. We're maintained at 470,000 over the last year and a half because if they broke that, then the market that was trying to avail of those houses wouldn't have been able to avail of the first home scheme. So there is antidotal evidence out there that has helped maintain the price of houses down and kept within in the bracket. But and all the of this begs the most... have different prices is that we all understand the cost of building apartments are a lot more expensive than building houses. That's why, number one, there's a difference between an apartment price and a house price. OK, and well, I, I, don't, I, I don't understand uh, why property is as expensive as it is. And this is the fundamental question, isn't it? Why are property high prices so high? Uh, and why can the government not bring down those prices instead of investing in people's homes? Yeah, like, I mean, in fairness, in relation to, we have to acknowledge that there was significant inflationary in relation to construction, both because of COVID and then in relation to the the war in in Ukraine. And on foot of that, the government did try to address this cost of inflation. And what they did, first of all, was they introduced a waiver levy scheme, which seemingly handily has actually worked in trying to stop the increase of house prices. Secondly, that first home or or the uh, development levy waiver was also applied to self-bills. So people building their own homes weren't weren't forced to pay the development contribution contribution scheme to the local authority. And that, on average, I believe, was 15 and 17,000 euros per unit being built. So the government has tried to act in, in relation to that. But we also have to acknowledge, Michael, that we were in a huge inflationary cycle in relation to the war in Ukraine and what the impact that COVID had. And that's going to take a while to watch out. And that's why the likes of the development waiver scheme was introduced by the minister to address that that increase. We're also building houses today to a much better, much higher standard than we ever built before. And there is a cost element in relation to the energy efficiency we're building houses today. There is a cost to that. There is a cost to the oversight now in relation to building control. And there there also is a cost in relation to the general standards. So those three items alone have increased the cost of housing. Okay. And and the other thing, when if you're building your own house, you ask anybody Mm. who's building their own house on their own land, 
and doing it by direct labour, they will tell you the cost of the building their house is 200 to 250 to 300,000 euros. That's with no land cost, Michael. So there is a there is a cost in relation to building houses to the standards we are today. There is a there is a cost there, but also we had the huge spike in inflation and cost because of the war in Ukraine. Okay, I don't think that would instill confidence in anyone who's hoping for the cost of property to decrease in the short term. But we leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed for joining us on the program today. That's Fianna Fáil Senator Pat Casey. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you're a regular listener to this programme, you'll be very familiar with uh, the ongoing controversy about how Louth County Council handled uh, freedom of information request uh, that was submitted uh, by this programme and LMFM. Uh, I know uh, that we've given a lot of time to this, but it is very much a live issue and it's expected that it'll be discussed at the upcoming meeting meeting of uh, the local authority. If you're not aware of uh, the story, we made a Freedom of Information request to Louth County Council about a motion that was disallowed uh, from uh, the council agenda in April. That request yielded two responses, two documents, two records. We appealed that. That resulted in five records. uh, And we said we weren't satisfied because we had four more than five records in our possession at the time that related to this uh, that we knew that Louth County Council had. We uh, took our appeal to the Office of the Information Commissioner. That resulted in a judgment against the council and a direction to carry out a proper search, which resulted in the council coming up with 892 emails. Ken Fox is a director and founder of Right to Know. That's a not-for-profit focused organisation on vindicating the rights of citizens to access information and on publishing stories based on using those rights. Ken is on the line and a very good morning to you, Ken. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I know you've looked at this ruling from the Information Commissioner. What do you make of it? Well, I suppose just to to say that the idea of a public body failing to disclose records, it's it's not unprecedented or anything like that. There have been cases in the past where um, people have appealed FOI requests where they were unsatisfied with responses and it was discovered that there were further records that had not been declared. I suppose one of the more unique features of this case is the 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 number of records that hadn't been um, disclosed. And in particular, I think the decision makes very clear that the steps that the the county council took in the first place were completely inadequate in that, for instance, they didn't ask um, officials to search their emails. Fairly simple steps like that, you know, to ask any official who might have had kind of dealings with this to look through their files to see if they held records. Um, so, I mean, it, 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 the important thing with this case is that it was appealed by yourselves. Um, many cases like this where people make a request and get an unsatisfactory response are simply dropped because the person doesn't realise um, they haven't been provided with all records. Um, and many other cases are dropped because there are fees involved in appealing and, and 
for some people that that can be a kind of a barrier to to kind of taking it any further. Okay, uh, and when you say the council officials didn't search for the records, as was highlighted by the information commissioner. Uh, how do you balance that with the legislation? Because this is, is law uh, and there are obligations on public bodies such as Louth County Council. Yeah, and I suppose one of the things with FOI law um, and an awful lot of law is a huge amount of it, particularly when it comes to the responsibilities of uh, uh, elected representatives or members of staff in a public body is that it kind of makes the assumption that they are going to do their job properly and that they're going to act in good faith. So for that reason, the FOI Act is a little bit kind of silent on in terms of sanction or what might happen to a person um, if they fail to kind of stick to the stick to the rules. But the, when, when a request is being dealt with and the person is supposed to, uh, it's, there's a, a specific decision maker in every public body, and they're supposed to ensure that very thorough searches take place to check if uh, records are held, who holds those records, and then a decision made on whether those records should be released or not. And from this case, it's pretty obvious that um, several of those steps weren't taken. And I suppose I note that that in the aftermath of the decision, the, um, the council kind of suggested, well, it, it, it isn't really eight or 900 records. Some of them are repeat records and so on. Um, but that's kind of irrelevant. You know, you don't, get to, you don't get to start interpreting the records after the fact. You were supposed to release them in the first place. That's the obligation. Okay, um, that's an argument that the chief executive of uh, the council made in writing to all elected members in a letter that they would have received on Friday of last week. But uh, you're suggesting that those arguments don't hold up. Well, they're not really relevant because you, the request was supposed to be dealt with properly in the first place. So coming back a couple of several months later after a person has been forced into an appeal process and saying, well, there were loads more records, but we probably wouldn't have released some of them. Some of them were repetitive and so on. It, it really isn't it, it really isn't a factor. The only the only question is, you got an FOI request. Did you deal with it properly? And the decision from the information commissioner makes fundamentally clear that this request was not dealt with properly and that the searches that took place were inadequate. And so really, that's the only point that comes out of it. You know, mm. post um, trying to come up with a justification after the fact is kind of, it's, it's kind of beside the point. Making excuses. Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it, a public body isn't, it, can make excuses and so on. They're, they They can do that, but... Instead of making excuses, one of the things they would be far better doing is reviewing their processes, making a commitment that in future they're going to deal with FOI requests more thoroughly, so that when people make a request, be they a member of the public or a member of the media or an mm. elected representative, that they can be confident that proper searches have taken place. Because a lot of people in Laos, um, at this point, possibly who have made requests, to the county council might be asking themselves the question 
well, were proper searches carried out when I was looking for records? Is this a common practice? Is it a, was it a one-off? Um, I would always say the idea of a one-off getting caught being the one that gets highlighted is very unlikely. Usually these things are more indicative of, uh, of poor practice. Mm. Things like planning permission or housings uh, issues, right-of-way issues, things like that. People, I'm sure there's plenty of people listening to us who have looked for further information, uh, but they now may be asking if uh, those requests were dealt with properly. We know that all of uh, the Freedom of Information requests that go to Louth County Council are brought to a meeting of the senior management team on a weekly basis. So this goes right to the top. But is it right, in your view, Ken, to say that when proper searches are not carried out for whatever reason, that it is a breach of the law? And I would suggest that um, there's a question mark over whether it is a breach of the law. The FOI Act is... is is very weak in terms of enforcement and sanction. And where it comes to the possibility of sanction or 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 the possibility of, of a criminal act or a breach of the law, it applies in only very specific circumstances where a person has deliberately um, withheld documents. That would mean they had literally disposed of documents, destroyed documents, or deliberately altered documents so that they appear to show something else. So that is an extremely unusual set of circumstances and I've never come across a case where that possibility has been pursued. So what we see much more often is a kind of a failure by public bodies to do what they're supposed to do, which is what has happened here. Um, And unfortunately, um, when a public body fails to do what it's supposed to do, there is no sanction for them. There is no enforcement. The only thing that happens is an adverse decision is made against them that is only read by a handful of people. And it is entirely up to them whether they want to improve their practices or just continue in the same way. One last question. I'm sorry, Ken. One last question, if I may. If a council official... Uh, uh, responds to an appeal to a freedom of information request, as was the situation here, uh, and discovers five documents. Um, If afterwards, as was the case here, 892 emails are discovered, and that same person was the author of many of those and uh, the person who received many of those, uh, would that uh, beg different questions? I mean, it, beg- it, it absolutely begs questions. I, I, I can't decide on whether somebody, what, on what somebody should or shouldn't do. I mean, just to give you some perspective, we had a case several years ago where we sought records from the Department of Justice. It was correspondence between the then minister and her PR advisor, Terry Prone. And we were told that there were no records. But following investigation, it turned out that there were almost 200 records. And I suppose the, the, the fallout of that was that we eventually got the records, but that was it. Nothing further happened. Nothing further ever happens. There is no sanction. The Department of Justice made some vague promises that they would do better in future. Um, they did for a little while, and then mm-hmm. they just returned to previous practices. And um, so it's, it's oftentimes as well, it can be difficult to determine 
um, when an FOI is very poorly responded to, who is actually responsible? Like you mentioned issues around this coming before, each FOI request coming before senior management. For instance, there would be question marks over whether that should happen. FOI is supposed to be dealt with in a very kind of a neutral way in which every request is um, dealt with kind of on a, in, in, a, in a very open faith basis. So the idea that, that it's been, that they're being monitored or checked by press officers, by senior management and so on, that has the possibility of introducing kind of bias or kind of PR considerations into it that shouldn't actually exist. So it, it can be very complicated as to who is and who isn't responsible for, for a poor response. Okay, Ken, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Ken Fox is uh, director and founder of Right to Know, uh, uh, not-for-profit that is focused on vindicating the rights of citizens to access information and on publishing stories uh, that are based on using those rights. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the horrible discovery of 14 people, 12 adults and two children, Vietnamese, Kurdish and Turkish refugees, it's believed, who were found in a refrigerated trailer that had travelled from France to Rossler Europort. Eugene Drennan, spokesperson and ex-president of the Irish Road Haulage Association, is on the line. Good morning to you, Eugene and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, They were discovered because uh, they phoned uh, the police in uh, the UK uh, apparently from that trailer but I I take it that each of the 14 people including those two children are very lucky to be alive today. Yes, it would be because it was, as you say, a refrigerated trailer which is quite well sealed. Uh, When the migrants have been put on board or when in the hands of these criminal gangs have put them into trailers a trailer is just a trailer. They don't know if it's a box fan or a curtain side or what type of trailer it is. And it happened to be a fridge. Now, we in the haulage industry and hauliers throughout the country are, are breathing a sigh of relief that we don't have the fatality this morning. Nobody wants to have anything near or anything to do with anything like that, really. And we're so delighted that uh, they were saved. Um, they fridge happened to be running at Ambient, which is just around zero to plus two. It was a food product, so luckily they weren't, uh, you know, minus in any of the minus degrees or down to lower temperatures, uh, they wouldn't have survived. It's every trucker's nightmare, I take it. Every trucker's nightmare that is uh, going to the continent. Uh, these gangs are roaming all across the north of France and into Belgium. Uh, if you can picture them perhaps from the movie, the DJ landings or Saving Private Ryan or any of those, it's that area from Calais, Boulogne sur Mer, uh, Dunkirk, and then on to Austin, Belgium, and Zeebrugge. And they're looking to get to, to England. Uh, it's very much in the psychic of the of the people who are trying to come through is that they wish to get to England, whether it's from the old imperial days or whatever reason we don't know, are they aimed towards it by the criminal gangs? So that's where the money is for them to, to get them going to go to the UK. And you'd wonder if there's some other sort of dirty politics going on in the background, definitely criminality all over it. And they're roaming these roads constantly, every day. Every day we're finding them. Every day we're getting them taken out of trailers. UK people, English drivers as well. You get some signal, some sort of sign. You may have somebody on board, or as you go through the checks, you spot something. 
and it's next impossible to keep on top of it. Okay, and that uh, particular trailer could have been an elaborate coffin for 14 bodies. Uh, I'm sure those people must have been terrified getting into it uh, and uh, I just hope that they're all well. Uh, what about the driver? Is there is there any consequence for the driver? There's huge consequence for the driver and for the haulier. Uh, the driver will be under surveillance and interview now uh, for some days, perhaps. Um, certainly their name will go on the file and they are the party to this in, in a lot of cases. Um, then for the haulier, that load will have to be destroyed. He's had his trailer badly damaged. Uh, it would be held by the authorities uh, for some days um, between that and trying to get the load out to have it destroyed and the truck held up as well. Very severe penalties, very severe uh, costly claims on insurance. And outside of going through the rigours of law or criminal justice or any sort of justice system, the natural costs are quite a heavy penalty. I'm sure. I'm sure. Eugene, I have to leave there, but thank you indeed. I appreciate your time. Uh, Thank thank you, as I say, for joining us on the programme. Eugene Drennan, spokesperson and ex-president of the Irish Road Haulage Association. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's hear more about uh, these concerns uh, about uh, the workers in Tara Mines uh, that are being raised by the Unite Trade Union. Tom Fitzgerald, Regional Coordinating Officer with Unite, is on the line. A very good morning to you, Tom, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I take it everybody was taken very much aback at a proposal from the company to cut the workforce force by over one-third. Yeah, good morning, Michael, to you and your listeners. Yes, of course, people were absolutely taken aback, but it occurred to me, actually, in advance of coming on your show this morning, just to think back where we were last July when the uh, announcement uh, to close Tara was actually put in the media uh, uh, in, in advance of workers actually being advised. And at the time, uh, Tara Mine workers took an incredibly brave stand and stood outside uh, the workplace and said, we demand decency being the man justice and I remember speaking I think in your show at that time and I said I'm hoping that the employer now will engage in a meaningful and serious way and the government will do the same but the cynical side of my brain is telling me that actually the strategy here is uh, that on the one hand uh, they've they've looked at the the, the market conditions are in favour for maximising profitability so the best thing to do is to close the mine we'll, we'll, we'll save money uh, and we will press government for grants and we will then at a certain point in time press workers for concessions and at the time I remember the company saying that's a cynical attitude which is not correct and so on and so forth uh, and that very scenario is that's involved here that's what they've been doing they've been uh, uh, engaging with government around issues of licenses grants supports and now they're on board for Enterprise Ireland and then the uh, come early 2024 when the unions are knocking the door saying our oh, people need to be back on work they need to get back on with their lawyers the implications of this and the stress is huge you can imagine never mind uh, uh, the wider implications for the local community and that's exactly what they're doing they're doing this and what they want is to try and bring about uncontested change and it's purely in the interest of uh, maximising profit they have been taking wealth uh, out of the oil soil for the last 50 years and now all they're looking to do is maximise that now at this stage to the detriment of workers and to the detriment of the community at large and it's absolutely outrageous and that's why we're making the point here that the government needs to step in in a very serious and determined way and use the leverage and the tools available to Tara 
and mm. the leading in international companies and say, listen, we've no problem you coming in here and making money and doing well for yourself, but you're not going to deal in the backs of these workers, uh, uh, eroding their conditions of employment, damaging the community, uh, and hurting families. We're not you, having it. You described it as a, a slash and burn approach in your press release, uh, and you believe that the company is playing fast and loose with uh, the employees' job security. No question. And actually, if you've seen, if you were at a witness at events there yesterday, um, uh, the, the, the premise for being at the WRC yesterday was under Section 26 of the Industrial Act of 1990. At the heart of that, without boring your listeners on the issue, is the voluntary process that you go in and you say, these are our issues, these are your issues. And the Labour Court had given us a very clear direction to that. And the four issues to be discussed was the date of recommencement of the Mayan the voluntary redundancy package it should have become essential. Uh, uh, the status of temporary and fixed-term workers and the payment of reps uh, to being around the situation uh, of discussions and meetings. So it's very clear. So rather than doing that, coming in and honouring that, uh, the approach from the employer was to come in with reams of pages, all sorts of proposed changes, didn't have enough copies, had a contemptuous attitude to the workers in the room and effectively said, here we have a programme for change here. It reduces it constitutes massive reduction in numbers, reductions in terms of recent employment, and should if you don't like it, there's not really much room for negotiation. Um, it concluded that there would be some discussion at local level. What they were doing is effectively was closing the door on serious discussions and serious negotiations, despite the fact that uh, that's what you are there for. So um, key issues that need to be discussed around the open of the mind, around if they have to reduce the workforce, and sometimes there are circumstances where uh, that's the case, you have a serious discussion, you look for volunteers in the first instance, and what you do is you honour agreements. So rather than honouring agreements that would have been in the past, that if people did leave the mine, they would leave in a decent package and they would be able to move on with their lawyers. Because there was uh, some annoyance uh, before you got into that meeting yesterday in the WRC uh, that uh, the company was proposing a voluntary package but hadn't negotiated a package with the unions. And that's the point where you use the terminology of slash and burn because the last agreed uh, package was, you know, in relative terms because it's never good news for a worker when you're losing your job. Uh, but if you point of redundancy is actually to allow you to move on with your life, uh, and what they have effectively they have decreased that by, I think, uh, almost threefold. Uh, and to in the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. To add insult to injury, uh, they actually had that in the media before they actually had a consultation with the unions uh, and the workers. So that's been the approach. What, what they want to do is kind of, you know, before you go into a negotiation process, Michael is saying, listen, you know what? You're not going to be sitting at the table. We have a conversation with you about the crumbs on the floor. Uh, and we would be foolish from a union point of view to have a debate about who owns the crumbs. We are saying we need to be at the table. We need to negotiate proper terms and conditions of our people. And at the heart of that is government intervention. OK. Uh, as a union, you're rejecting the crumbs. Uh, but as individuals, I take it that after seven months, some people at least are, are getting desperate and those crumbs may actually seem appealing. Do you think that's what the company is calculating? Uh, yeah, and I don't want to be... I was using that uh, analogy, Michael. I don't want to sound, uh, you know, to be sound, saying something that's insulting because I can imagine that's the sort of weaponization of words that the employers will use. Tom Gerald referred to as crumbs. I'm making the point here, of course, there'll be individuals who are at a particular point in life that there's a redundancy package here uh, and we, we think they'll move on. The other workers gone. These actually, these are looking to uh, uh, slash and burn conditions of employment and the best bet for me is to move on. Of course people will make those calculations. Of course they will make those calculations and we have to be respectful of individual views. Uh, but uh, by the same token, right, we, from the union point of view, have to harness the collective strength of workers and say, well, actually, uh, uh, what it should be is it should be an appropriate package where it's actually required, where it's actually required. We have engaged in a serious way. And at the moment, um, there needs to be the assistance of the government to come in. And there's all sorts of details and nuances to be debated, but fundamentally, the government needs to take this position. The government ministers in this constituency need to come in and say, listen, Minister Cove, ministers need to come in and say, uh, you have been extracting wealth uh, from, from the Irish soil for the best part of 50 years. You've been doing very, very well for yourself. And at this point in time, if you're going to bring about a programme of change or you're going to actually look towards reducing numbers, workers need to be treated decently and with respect. And at the moment, you're not doing that. And if you don't do that, well, the Irish government would be happy enough to use leverage to apply pressure uh, in those circumstances. That's the kind of backroom conversation. We, as a group of unions, when we met Minister Coven. Minister McEntee before Christmas, we made those very points. We said, you're going to need to do this. You're mm. going to have to show some teeth on behalf of Taramoyne workers and the community in need Leo. You're going to have to do that. And what are the options that are open to the government? I think the government, uh, uh, and I probably need a longer time in your show to get down through the mm. details, but there's issues around future licensing, current licensing, and uh, support. They've made the point. I think Minister Coveney Introduce, uh, it put his press statement over sometime in, in December making the point that they're on board for Enterprise Ireland and Enterprise Ireland are actually engaging with the company and support that can assist with an accelerated sustainable resumption of operations. Now I don't know all the details of those but they should come with conditions and the conditions fundamentally the conditions would be respect to turn and workers. You suggest 
the idea of alternative ownership in your statement. Um, can that happen uh, if Biden is not on page? Well, I suppose the wealth is the zinc and the zinc is in the ground. So they can't just pick it up and go out without workers or, or to my mind, the Irish government as well. So from that point of view, I think everything has to be on the table. Um, uh, Michael, whether it's uh, temporary intervention by the government in terms of public ownership, uh, which the ICTU supported at the conference last year, all unions involved supported that, or uh, it, 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 it's reaching around the, the world and uh, asking, are there other investors, are there other uh, mine companies uh, to be able to look at this? And again, um, I don't accept those points are far-fetched at all. I think what has to happen here is the Irish government has to be doing all to support these workers here. Uh, and, and like I said, it's not as if the product can be, uh, you know, just produced in a different part of the world. It's in the ground. The wealth is in the Irish soil. And so we need to be bold. The Irish government needs to be bold. They're actually, we're happy enough for believing or anybody else to come in and extract the wealth out. But there's conditionality attached to that and that's protecting the jobs as far as my vote. Was anything achieved at the Workplace Relations Commission yesterday? You probably got it from my tone on behalf of the workers. Mm. A lot of more of annoyance and frustration, actually, um, uh, was a big factor uh, because uh, the approach was, again, uh, more contemptuous attitude towards workers. But what was agreed was that the parties would return late January and in the intervening period, uh, the employer would meet up with workers and say, listen, here's the plan, because these weren't the hundreds of pages, which, of course, the union didn't get in advance. So, the, you know, the devil is always in the detail of that. Now, we're concerned, and we said, listen, the company's true management structure should, should sit down with the workers, go down through the detail and take the views and opinions, because who would know best other than the workers? The attitude seems to be something, well, actually, this is our plan, and we don't mind your comments, but it's not really subject to negotiation, even though we reference the fact it's a negotiation process. And our concern in these circumstances, Michael, is that actually they'd be paying lip service to the definition of negotiation, that they'll, they'll send something up by email, and here's the plan, here's a fait accompli, and we'll rediscuss this late in November at the WRC with your unions, but, but there's, not, there's not much to see here. The correct approach in those circumstances would be to sit down with workers, give them the paperwork in advance, and ask for feedback uh, in terms of the detail, um, what does work, what doesn't work, what's practical, what's impractical. Because if they don't take that approach, all this points to a wider plan. And the wider plan, again, I think when I said to you at the start of the, 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 the conversation, last year our concern was that there was a cynical approach here by the company. Uh, I'll say what our concerns are in terms of a further cynical approach, that they have their mind uh, focused on Tara Deep, where there's significant wealth to be achieved, but they'll have to get to that over the next four to five, maybe maybe five to seven years, that they say, and clear the decks uh, between then and now um, to do that in a cheaper way uh, to the detriment of the existing workforce. Those people with service kind of find ways to squeeze and push them out, put them under pressure, offer them reduced packages, uh, and trying to find a way to move them out so that the decks are clear to maximise profit charity. No one's saying they shouldn't make profit and do well for themselves, but um, our concern is that that's the big uh, play here, uh, and uh, we have to do everything we can to stop that, and we need the support and assistance of the Irish government in that regard. 
It really is a, a, a dreadful situation uh, uh, as you uh, explain it to us, uh, uh, at least, Tom, uh, and you're making your comments following the WRC meeting that took place yesterday, uh, which was obviously with the company and the group of unions. I was speaking to your colleagues in SIP2 on Monday before the meeting, uh, and you mentioned your tone. I felt uh, and said it to John Regan at the time that there was a a change in tone uh, and that it seemed like relations were deteriorating. Uh, And for Taramine's workers listening to us now and uh, indeed their families and people who are households who are are, are relying uh, on pay uh, slips uh, as family income um, they must be really concerned uh, afraid uh, and uh, you can imagine that some people would say look I'm done with it and You'd wonder, uh, I wonder if you think uh, that this is part of a, a divide and conquer approach that people will give up and throw in the towel and accept uh, these uh, redundancy packages uh, which are, are far lower than what they would have been entitled to under previous agreements with the unions. I think that's a correct analysis and I think you're right to mention the fact that John and Monty as well, his, his tone has changed because of the, the approach because despite all of the union's best efforts to engage the company are, it's looking like they're trying to find the work, worst case scenario and the void and conquest at the heart of it and, and the counterweight to that of course is unity amongst workers. So we'll be having meetings with our members in the coming weeks and we'll be, we'll be calling for unity amongst the various unions the unions collectively and we'll be calling upon the government to engage and support those and from a unified point of view the, the fundamental point is Tara Moyen and Tara Deep it's all viable there's money and wealth to be made the employer knows that what they're looking to do is just trying to find a way to maximise the profits to get out and what we have to be able to say uh, from a unified point of view we're not necessarily accept that of course if the situations where you know uh, people make individual choices. That's we will respectful of that. But collectively, we have to be able to say this is not something that we're prepared to accept. And the tools and the points of pressure that are available to the government need to be used uh, in the interest of of and, and the community in the general sense. Because you're right, and it's a really good point that you make. You make, you make uh, Michael in terms of looking into the hearts of the kitchen and the sitting rooms of walks today in Tarramoyne, thinking and wondering what's the future. Um, because to our mind. This is unnecessary. Just one of the things, and I think again, it happened back when I spoke to you in the middle of last year. What they haven't provided is, and we've asked them continuously, show us the profits you made for the last decade. Oh, it's part of the group, it's part of believing you can see it. Well, then show us. Show us if there's problems. And we know they're making huge amounts of uh, uh, profits. And it seems to me, and again, I'm happy, and, and no better man than yourself to debate and tell us if I'm wrong on this. It seems to me that the, the government, uh, the Irish government, has a huge hand to play in the interest of Tara and workers and, and the community in general. And, and, and I, I don't think a lack of intervention will be forgiven in, in, in the potential election year. I just don't think it will be. I think the Irish government needs to step up uh, and engage and, uh, with this company and say, you need to take uh, the call for these workers and the representatives seriously and engage now. 
Tom, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much for joining us on the programme today. Uh, that's uh, Tom Fitzgerald, Regional Coordinating Officer with the Unite Trade Union. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, the Pope has uh, described surrogacy as deplorable. He says it's a grave violation of uh, the dignity of women. It's exploitation of women. It's the commercialisation of pregnancy, which he, he says is uh, despicable. And it amounts to a uterus for rent. And Pope Francis is calling for the international community to prohibit surrogacy universally. Let's uh, speak uh, to Augustinian priest Iggy O'Donovan, who's on the line. Good morning to you, Iggy. Happy New Year, by the way. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Are you surprised by the Pope's attitude towards surrogacy? I was surprised at the stridency of his language. Now, uh, it's, it's, it is a complicated topic, I admit that, and I don't, I'm not up with all the legal situation around the world. I know some countries have it, some countries do not have it, some permit it, their citizens to go abroad, but they don't have it in their own country, and so forth. So it's a, but anyway, we'll talk about the general principle of the thing more than that. And uh, so that his language about describing it as, uh, you know, that it was uh, exploiting uh, women and so forth. Now, insofar as he's referring to poor people from the, permit my expression, third world countries being used because they are available cheaply for this, for rich Westerners, he has, may have a point there. That's something to look out for, where it can be abused. But all in all, surrogacy, I think, has been a huge, oh, I, oh my God, a huge plus in the lives of many people. A simple example, in our own country here, now we talked about LGBT rights in recent years, very much up to the recent referendum and so forth. Now, a male couple, by definition, if they want a family, have to opt for surrogacy. Apart from, okay, maybe they could adopt and so forth. But if they want a child of carrying the genes of one of themselves, they have to opt for surrogacy. Because the simple main biological fact is men cannot. They're not having a uterus. So I don't want to be stating the obvious. Mm. So in that type of case, uh, I, can't, I see that the Pope's language, I think, is too strident, too extreme. While accepting that if he was talking about abuse of poor people, fine, I accept that. Now, last night, I looked at, I'm looking at BBC Newsnight, and uh, a lady was on, a young lady, who has been the mother of three surrogate babies. She said she did it because she wanted to help out other people. She made no money on it, none whatsoever. She said she was paid her expenses. It was, there was no exploitation. She knew what she was doing. And she said she knew that she wouldn't be bonding with her child. She'd be handing the child over to the uh, surrogate par- to the parents. And so she did in three cases. And she spoke about the immense joy and fulfillment that was for her in being able to do that and in the new parents in receiving their child through surrogacy. So I have no problem with that whatsoever. I will accept the Pope's point if he's talking about exploitation and so forth. He did use that word mm. and about the uterus out for rent or whatever. Okay there. The overall principle, I have no difficulty with whatsoever. It's a, by and large, it's a force for the good. And I do know people who, through surrogacy, have the joy of a family now that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So in that case, I'm afraid myself and Francis maybe are on dif- we're not on the same hymn sheet, so to speak. <laughs> no, absolutely not, uh, because uh, the Pope said it should be prohibited universally, in other words, under all circumstances. 
Well, I, in, in his own, we'll say his own country. I know he's Argentinian, but he's, he's living in Italy. In Italy, surrogacy is not permitted. And I know at the moment the Italian Prime Minister is actually toying with the idea of forbidding Italians to go abroad for it. So, as I say, it's a, it's a complicated issue. But while I accept that there are circumstances where it can be exploited, the same as anything else. Like, for example, I, I, we have heard of cases where, say, poor people from Africa and so forth are brought to Europe in, and their parents are given a few bob for the child's kidneys. That is exploitation, where the huge surgery is carried out on a poor African who, whose parents are happy to accept maybe the few thousand euro from rich Europeans for the kidney. That's okay, but it's an exploitation. In that sense, I would take Francis's point. But overall, I think that he was talking nonsense. He undoubtedly upset a lot of people, a lot of women, no doubt, but a lot of families, no doubt. Well, uh, did, did, he, did he need to go there? He didn't. It seemed a gratuitous thing. Like He was actually talking to the diplomatic corps. And the Vatican, have, I think there's 190 countries represented at the Vatican, which is a, far, a huge diplomatic network. He was speaking to them in his New Year's address. And he, he did mention other things. He mentioned the Ukraine. He mentioned Gaza. He mentioned all types of things. But the main point seems to be this. But I don't know, is it a weakness we Catholic clergy have, especially we elderly celibates? We find it difficult to keep away from bedroom topics, like such surrogacy, contraception, whatever it might be. Mm. So, and often make a nonsense of it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, and so, it, it's not ca- causing me, and whether I would be conscious, all right, of families who have surrogate, uh, children through surrogacy. And when they listen to that about exploitation and about uh, it being a sort of a exploitative and, uh, oh, whatever, well, womb for rent and so mm-hmm. forth, I could see how they could be deeply hurt. And I think that is very, very wrong. That probably wasn't Francis's intention, but certainly his phraseology, to put it at his most charitable, was pretty awkward. And uh, I, I just hope that the poor man was making a mistake. Yeah, and how should people interpret it? Is it a personal opinion, uh, an opinion uh, held by someone who happens uh, to head up the Catholic Church? Or is that now church teaching? Well, the point about it, uh, when the Pope says something or if the Prime Minister says something, they can hardly argue that it's a personal opinion because uh, a personal opinion given by somebody like whether Trump or Biden or whoever, it's not a personal opinion anymore when this person is in a position of huge influence. So uh, I'm not so sure what the position of the Catholic Church on it is officially, but I, I was just surprised it came up. I thought it was a cloud, a cloud in a clear sky and he should have left the topic alone. Because I've, I, of all the things that have ever been brought up with me, my God, I've been involved in controversies of every sort. I don't know if I've ever met a, someone complaining about surrogacy uh, one way or the other. OK. Uh, if someone confessed to you uh, during a confessional uh, that uh, they were a surrogate mother or a surrogate father, um, uh, would you feel obliged to absolve them? First of all, I would tell them they shouldn't be confessing that to me at all. I wouldn't be absolving them in the sense that there was no sin there. I'd be congratulating them. And uh, now I know there's other issues, and some of your listeners may allude to sometimes that, uh, you know, about the creating of embryos and what becomes of embryos that aren't used and so forth. Now, that's a genuine moral issue because an embryo is, is a potential full human being. And uh, that, I'm not dismissing all that type of stuff at all. No way. 
but the principle of surrogacy, which the Pope seems to dismiss, I think on that one, he and I, as I said, are on different hymn sheets. I think he just got it wrong. Mm, okay. Well, it's okay getting it wrong, but I'd be sorry for people who are hurt. All right, and you've been a fan of Pope Francis. Uh... By and large, because there, there's, a, there's a very active right-wing group undermining him at all all the time. But at least recently, I think he's made some good-sounding things, like he's one on the blessing of same-sex marriage and so forth, and uh, he, okay, he says it's meant to be a simple blessing, but shall we know the simple bless any blessing is a simple blessing. Uh, but I was delighted with that, because uh, it's something that has arisen in my ministry, and I was off, caught, but now at least I know now that I have Francis's blessing on it, and I'm happy enough to to, reg- uh, to accept the Pope's opinion on that one. Yeah, last month the Vatican declared that prudence and attention to the ecclesial context and uh, to the local culture of blessing same-sex couples could allow for different forms of blessing, but not for a total or definitive denial. Uh, Oddly enough, uh, that's been contested by the Archbishop of Dublin, uh, who has said that couples in so-called irregular unions, including same-sex couples, cannot be refused a blessing by a Catholic priest. No, they cannot. Well, I think the, the Vatican have come back again. They said the blessing is to be a simple one, not more than 15 seconds. Now, I get through, I could get through a perfect blessing in less than 15 seconds, no bother. And uh, so, uh, I, no, I think we're fitting hairs there. You know, that you can do, you, if it's kept simple, and if it's spontaneous rather than organised. But honest to God, no. I mean, again, we're getting tied up in knots on this. But I'm glad at least the Pope made a move on that one. The surrogacy one, I think, OK, we'll get around that too. But I think it's a pity it came out in the way that it did. Now, admittedly, it was in the five minutes in a 45-minute speech. And so much so that, but as usual, of course, certain things come to the top. It was the most newsy bit. Mm. Uh, but, uh, no, as I say, it's not something I would have gone along with. And generally, as a great admirer of Francis, uh, I would be sorry to see him go down that road. But um, it's fortunate, but we'll get on with it. OK. Iggy, nice to talk to you as always. Thanks for taking the time to be with us on the programme today. Thank, Thank you. you indeed. That's uh, Father Iggy O'Donovan, an Augustinian priest. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, apart uh, from uh, the atrocities taking place in uh, Gaza, the Middle East is a fascinating place uh, by anyone's standards. Uh, I'm not sure, though, how uh, many of us have uh, been to the Middle East. I presume uh, quite few of us, uh, in actual fact, have been for various uh, different reasons. But uh, if you think of somewhere like Bethlehem, uh, it must be a very special place, generally speaking, at Christmas. And I believe that every year, apart from this year, because of the war, thousands of tourists and Christian pilgrims flock to Bethlehem, the biblical birthplace of Jesus in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. But this year, celebrations in Bethlehem and across the Middle East were dramatically toned down. It is not your traditional nativity scene. Rather than baby Jesus snuggled into a manger filled with hay, this year, at the Lutheran Church in Bethlehem, baby Jesus lays in a mound of rubble, wearing a keffiyeh, a traditional Palestinian scarf. The Holy Family are searching for him nearby. This is what we see on the TV. People in Gaza rushing to the homes and looking under the rubble to find any sign 
uh, of life. Children from under the rubble. Reverend Munthar Isak is a pastor here and says it is no time to celebrate when Palestinian children are being killed in Gaza. This is what Christmas looks like in Palestine, the birthplace of Jesus, the birthplace of Christmas. By now, the streets of Bethlehem are usually decorated with lights, adorned with ornaments, and filled with worshippers and pilgrims from all over the world. But this year, the bell at the Church of the Nativity, which contains the grotto where most Christian denominations believe Jesus was born, rings to an empty square. There is no massive Christmas tree as usual, and the mood is somber. These are, they are the, also some icons, the baby Jesus. Ronnie Tabash's grandfather opened this shop in 1927, just steps from the Church of the Nativity. He sells crosses and biblical characters carved from olive wood, rosaries, and portraits of the Holy Family. All the words sing for, for Bethlehem in Christmas. So imagine Bethlehem in Christmas time and in this time, how it's, it looks like the festivals, the people, the world. It's really very special. As you can see now, it's almost a desert. Christmas in Bethlehem in a war-torn region. That's part of a, a report from Rebecca Collard for The World. The World published Rebecca Collard's report on the 14th of December. Uh, now, the reason that I've played that for you is uh, that on the 23rd of December, it was shared on social media by Fianna Fáil councillor Conor Keelan, who joins us now. Uh, a very good morning to you, Conor, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. And you shared that report from the world on social media, as I say, feeling disappointed because you had a motion that you wanted the council to debate. Uh, and maybe you tell us a little bit more about that motion. Well, um, the issue of Palestine uh, is a strong issue of mine, personally speaking. Um, Frank Aiken, who um, represented uh, the Loud constituency for Fianna Fáil, um, he was a personal friend of my late grandfather. Um, uh, he was a founder member of Dundalk Fianna Fáil Common um, in Dundalk, which is the first Fianna Fáil Common in Dundalk, and which uh, subsequently is known as the Philip Daly Common in Dundalk, which is common that I am currently a, an elected councillor of, and uh, which my father is, is the current uh, chairperson of as well. Um, uh, um, Frank Aiken, as is recognised in uh, research work and during his time as Minister of Foreign Affairs, that um, and Minister for External Affairs, after he seated him there, that um, he is the architect to stay of Ireland's uh, policy on Palestine, and um, Frank Aiken has been the architect of, um, and indeed was the first um, European politician after the Second World War, to actually call for the rights of Palestinian people to be enshrined abroad by um, European uh, nations. After the Second World War, recognising the rights of refugees um, 
uh, after the Second World War with displacement of uh, refugees um, being recognised through the UN and the EU. And equally on the, that respect as well, he, um, being familiar with the NACBA, he also um, recognised um, the fact that partition had been a wrong thing that had occurred in Palestine and also had uh, recognised that, um, as recognised by the Irish Republic in the Dáil um, statute, that the, the proper means to have peace a peace solution in Palestine is for a two-state solution based on the 1967 borders, a policy which, despite UN resolutions, has been interfered with by mm. the Israeli government. And um, um, the reason why I brought the motion in the emergency way to the council was to say that Dundalk, my hometown, which... Um, um, uh, a town which was once represented by Frank Aiken. Um, I've, I've given you his uh, sure. brief biography, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he, the Aiken Barracks and the dog is named after man as well. Mm-hmm. And also, um, uh, he, um, uh, his family members are still alive, and um, they could certainly tell you about the work he did in. Uh, for the Palestinian people um, across the world. And um, in recognition of the same, I thought it might be useful and indeed worthwhile for Dundalk to to actually consider twinning with Bethlehem, okay. where it's the birthplace of Jesus, who is recognised as a prophet in Islam, as well as being considered the Son of God in Christianity. And, and 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 also, um, Mike, the fact that this would consider this would potentially could um, uh, generate economic and tourism benefits for both Bethlehem, but also in Dundalk for terms of um, uh, economic and cultural um, tourism exchange. But so at a, a, a time of terrible war, death, uh, destruction, and atrocity. Uh, it would have resonated all the more. I, I mean, I think the idea of an Irish town twinning with Bethlehem uh, would resonate with people now because of what's happening uh, in Gaza. But it would have resonated all the more in December, and that's exactly exactly, Mike. That's why I brought it brought it to the December meeting because of what was like. As you said, the report from World was on the fourteenth of December in advance of the county council meeting. And at the time, the, um, all the Christian churches in Bethlehem had said that they were going silent because of what was happening in Gaza. And at the time, it was agreed that the um, that the the statue, of, the little statue of Jesus in the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, would wear um, a Palestinian scarf. And um, um, I was Paul Botley the Kaelic refused to allow me to um, base the emergency motion um, at the meeting. You had, there's a process, just just to explain to people, uh, there's a process, uh, you, you, you needed 11 signatures, did you? Actually, I needed six, but I got 11. Okay. And um, the motion was disallowed. Who, who disallowed the motion? 
Paula Butterly um, refused to allow me to debate or speak in the motion. Right. The chairperson. She didn't give me a reason, in fact, to allow me to just refuse point blank. In fact, Mike, I actually had another motion on down to um, uh, to speak about the um, the proposed uh, dissolution of the joint police and committees, um, which is being done by Hannah McEntee, who was on your show this week uh, from Mead East. Um, I was talking about Navin Hospital, um, the current Minister for Justice. Um, now, frankly, had I been on the programme with her, I would have told her that her, pro- her plans to um, abolish JPCs, um, I don't think Minister McEntee was ever a councillor herself, but um, um, had she ever served in JPC herself, she would have known that um, they had been a very valuable piece of legislation actually enacted by um, one of the few pieces of useful legislation for councillors and actually enacted by the um, the the legislation brought in by Phil Hogan who okay. frankly destroyed local government in this country okay. but um, and uh, McEntee proposed to abolish them now I wanted to debate, I wanted to withdraw my motion on abolition of JPCs being brought in by a Finnegan minister to allow but, for this um, motion to be heard. Yeah, to be heard. Right. But um, but Paula Buttery, the care of who's Finnegan, um, wouldn't allow me to do that. Okay. Uh, and so I, that, I, I don't know. I don't know what your listeners might think about that. Whether that, she might think she might be pregnant a Finnegan minister. I don't know whether she's doing that or not. But she hasn't spoken about that yet. Okay. But that that that, that, that was that, that was you know, the sole that was the sole just so so that we understand, Connor. That was the sole decision of the Cahirlock, was it? It was yes. Okay. I don't know. Now, I, w- I would point out to you, Mike, as well, that I did say to uh, the Cahirlock in advance of the meeting that um, that if any director of service wanted to speak to me about the motion um, and point out to me if I'd done anything wrong in breach of standing orders, that they could speak to me. Okay. But none of them spoke to me about it. Okay. Uh, did you raise it with the executive? Well, that's what I said to Paula Butterley. Um, I said to them, said to Paula Butterley, if any of the director of services... And presumably all she expected wanted to speak about the motion, then they could do so, but none was spoken about it. Okay. Uh, it's not the first time that a, a motion has been disallowed at council level and you've uh, taken exception in the past. Uh, this is I a, have, yes. It's th- the elected right. It's, as you know yourself, my position that it's the right of an elected member to have motion heard at council level. Okay, stay with me if you will for a minute, Connor. I have to take a, a break, and I'll come back after the break and talk to you some more. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. I should mention that uh, Connor Cailin's motion on twinning Dundalk with Bethlehem will be heard in the January meeting at the January meeting of Louth County Council. Uh, but as you say, it was disallowed in December by the Cahirlock, uh, and we'll ask the Cahirlock to respond to your criticisms uh, 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 at another time, Connor. Uh, but uh, you have some concerns because, as I said, you took uh, exception to uh, another motion, a totally separate motion being taken off uh, the agenda unilaterally by the CEO back in, in April when you were Cahirlock and you made your concerns known about that. Uh, that was that motion uh, that Maeve Yor had down in relation to Brother Edmund Garvey which a lot of people listening will be very familiar with. Uh, but uh, you um, 
raise a, another issue uh, about um, Louth County Council and that is uh, to do with its use of uh, the Gospel Hall of uh, the Redemptorist Church in Dundalk for council meetings during Dundalk or during COVID and for staff Christmas parties. The only reason, the only reason I raise this with you, Mike, is the fact that um, I find it ironic that um, I find it ironic that the staff celebrated um, a Christmas party in the Gospel Hall um, uh, when the when the staff when the council closed for Christmas, while I was denied the right to debate um, a motion on Twinnington Dock at Bethlehem, Mike. Um, uh, where, as we said earlier in the course of debate, what the World Report said for Jesus um, is currently Jesus for Christmas was wearing a Palestinian scarf in the crib in the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem. And um, if my motion had been allowed to be heard, then Dog could possibly be involved now in the twinning process to twin the dog with Bethlehem in mm-hmm. Palestine, which would have been a nice gesture, frankly, I think, in solidarity with the Palestinian people what's been going on now. Um, but a couple uh, of councillors... And, and equally speaking, equally, just if I might come in briefly, and also, um, uh, there's also a cross of Jesus in the council chamber, um, in the county council. Now, um, uh, and as I said earlier, um, Jesus is, in the Christian theology, is the son of God, but equally is considered a prophet in Islam. So like, um, as a gesture of Solidarity, like um, if anyone has any issues with the motion at all, like be they from the executive or be they from the council chambers, like surely they should just um, they can either walk out of the meeting if no one's meeting debated, um, be they staff or executive, um, and let um, people like myself who have no issues at all mm. with religion or um, uh, twinning the dog with Bethlehem just to the motion. Did you sure. object to using the Gospel Hall in the church uh, for council meetings? Because, uh, as I understand it, a couple of uh, councillors objected in writing. Uh, I wasn't one of those. I understand there were at least a couple who, who did object. Okay, and were they responded to? Um, I believe they were. Okay. Uh, and I think uh, that those councillors had asked why is uh, the church being used with religious symbols uh, when there are hotels uh, who were looking for business? I don't know about that, but I do know for a fact that hotels were used during COVID for other local authorities. Hmm. Okay, and do we know if the church was paid uh, for using um, the gospel hall for council meetings or for staff parties? That's an issue you'd need to raise with um, uh, the executive branch or the communication section of the county council. It is indeed an issue that we've raised uh, with Loud County Council uh, after hearing from you. Uh, and we've asked what that cost might be and how it, that cost compares to renting out uh, rooms from local hotels uh, and other local businesses. Well, I am on the audit committee of local County Council, so I think it's it's part of my part and part of my role, you know, also to just check um, these matters as well for uh, for the point of probity. Hmm. Okay, uh, and 
what would you like to see? Would you like to see value for money or um, do you... Well, value for money is an issue that was raised at all the meetings, you know, as well. But mm. equally consistency, you know. So, like, um, if... Um, uh, like, my point of view is... my Part of this motion is all about consistency, Mike, as well. Like, I have no issue with... Um, uh, if anyone's issue is pointing, let them put them out in the chamber, frankly, when the motion is heard. Uh, the is currently twin with Reze in France. The is currently twin with Pikeville in uh, in a place in Kentucky, I believe. Mm. Um, now, um, uh, we are... Um, I'm making proposals twin and dog with uh, Bethlehem. Now, Kevin Meenan mentioned it last... Um, uh, I asked Kevin Meenan would he second the motion in advance he said he would he declared that in public at the last um, mm. uh, meeting in December um, and um, yeah, that's not in the minutes in fact okay. but he did say he would so I assume Kevin will do the same again okay. uh, courtesy mm. at the, in the January meeting so okay. I assume the meeting will be tabled proposed and seconded so then it's up to the elected members not exactly whether it's proposed or not All right. whether it's stopped or not you know what I mean sure I've just run out of time, Connor. I have to leave there. Thank you, Dave, for joining us on the programme. That's fine. Thanks again, Mike. Thank you. That is uh, Fianna Fáil Councillor in Louth, Connor Keelan, who brings us to the end of uh, today's programme. Maggie Maguire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwin, and we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.